The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Hi. Hi, Nadia. Fun. I get to have my friend, Hope Horlick be here today and share her story and her insight. And I'm super excited because this will be real, real girl chat. And I haven't heard your whole story myself, but you have been such an inspiration since I first met you, what, like a decade ago? Yes. We met through Dee's House, a treatment center for for women that is one of a kind because it sees how interrelated trauma is and just holds women as a whole with wings, as we like to call it. And I met her at the regular um, wings repair meeting and she sang. Hope is a singer, a musician, a realtor, and also a court-appointed advocate for foster children that I just found out. And I think it's so cool. We may do a whole nother episode on that. But what I'm most excited about today is because Hope is willing, is willing to share her story and to identify how shame has shown up because here we're dragging shame out of the shadows. And a lot of us just don't know it is shame. And it comes up in so many different ways. And so we're going to drag it out, hopefully, and then she's going to say what she does today and what she did along her journey to get out of that that painful emotion. And so, hi, Hope. Hi, Nadia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So I just want to start where you want to start. And, you know, I'm so blessed to receive the honor of you telling your story and you can start wherever you'd like to. Thank you for that introduction. And it's my pleasure. So I was born in New York and I have five brothers and sisters, three brothers and one sister. And um, my father was a traveling businessman. So we relocated 
from the East Coast to the West Coast a couple of times, um, starting with um, moving to San Mateo, California, which is near um, San Francisco and Oakland. And then we moved back about five years later to New Jersey, Oradell, New Jersey. And um, that's where I went to elementary school. And I had a fairly um, normal upbringing, you know, five brothers and sisters. Mom and dad were busy. House was busy. Um, we fought. Um, we had our holidays and our animals, and it was a pretty normal lifestyle. Um, we then um, relocated because my dad got transferred again to Los Altos, California, um, and I was in the sixth grade when we um, moved to Los Altos, and my dad had purchased a beautiful home with a swimming pool, and um, so I started in sixth grade, which was a little difficult because I didn't know anybody, and I had a huge New, New Jersey accent, and um, I was made fun of. Fun of. Um, I, I'm sure that there was probably a little bit of shame in that because I didn't understand um, that um, I had one gal, she ended up being my best friend, um, telling me that I couldn't talk like that. And so I um, did everything I could. Instead of talk, I was talk. Uh, orange, I would be orange. And um, she uh, helped me to change my New York accent or New Jersey accent. Mm -hmm. So um, perhaps there was a little bit of shame in that, but I ended up speaking like a Californian after that. Um, so anyway, so... How did it feel in you, though, at the time when you were a kid? Was it confusing right. and like... I thought that... Um, she, um, I was 11. And so I felt like when she, um, commented on that, I've, I felt like, oh, if I live here in California, then I have to speak Californian. So, um, I wasn't necessarily hurt about it. Um, but I did feel some shame and therefore I listened to her and, and we practiced <laughs> talking like a Californian. Was it like a self-consciousness, like like you won't be liked if you don't? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. I already felt uncomfortable going right into sixth grade when everybody knew all their friends, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade because it was elementary. So it was, I, I think it was either yeah, second grade to six or, yeah, you know, from another state and being that vulnerable at 11 years old and her telling me, you know, you talk funny. And, um, I mean, I was grateful to have a friend, but I was also like felt a little uncomfortable that I was called out on my accent. So you're an outsider that's coming in and, and all of us have this longing to be accepted and part of, yes. and by her saying that it made you feel not only like an outsider, but different. Yes. Yes. And it, it made me feel like that was like, an ugly language or a dirty, a dirty accent. And, and therefore I was like, my decision to change it was like quick. Like, I got to change, I got to change the way I talk so I can fit in here. Hmm. So, um, so then we, uh, then I went to um, uh, middle school, um, which is seventh and eighth grade into, um, into elementary, um, from elementary school into middle school. And um, 
up until then, I was getting straight A's and I was a good student, but somehow I was influenced by um, my friends that I chose to um, skip class and um, uh, do other things besides my homework and not having my homework. And my grades started falling and my girlfriend and I decided that um, we were going to take some alcohol to school and we put it in those little, um, you know, the little, the film holders that used to hold the little, um, uh, I think it was yeah. the, 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 what millimeter was that? I don't know, but yeah. Black and then the, the little black. Yeah. yeah. The gray with the black top or black with the gray top. We decided that we were going to put alcohol and my parents drank it, but they kept the alcohol up high. And, um, I'm now, um, 14, mm-hmm. 14 and a half, 15. And, um, we decided to put alcohol and, and take it to school and we took it and we drank it before gym class or PE is what they called it. Physical education, uh, physical education, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, we got caught and, um, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I was already afraid of teachers anyway. I guess it was just their authority that, uh, made me timid, but we got caught and I was hoping that they wouldn't contact my parents, but they did. And I went home and I, I will tell you that I was absolutely shameful and embarrassed and terrified. Um, because at 14 years old, bringing alcohol to school, like that is huge. And I knew it. And um, now go back one second to when the idea came up and you know, when you were deciding whether to do that with your friends and if there was fear in there, like within you about like, oh, I'm not going to be cool. That same, you know, outsider, um, separate feeling that came with, with the accent. Like when your friends were deciding, was it like, oh, I'm part of this, you know, um, I don't want to be separate and an outsider if I don't go along with this, or then when you found out just the, the, the real deep feelings in it, you were terrified of getting caught. um, Yeah. But of them not loving you as much of, you know, your friends blaming you or what, what was underneath it? I think so. It was just the one friend and, uh, and we were best friends and um, she was somewhat, she was the kind of friend that was kind of shovey and bossy and okay. I'm wearing a dress, you're wearing a dress. And I think we did it. I don't know that it was to fit in. I think that she liked to boss me around and liked me to come into her circle of what we're going to do. And I think part of it was absolutely to, to fit her. in. Please her, please her, and to not not have your only friend that was giving you the the quote unquote tips. Think you're not cool. But I also thought that we did it collectively to to push the envelope, to do something bad, to do something daring like that. So I think it was probably a mixture. So I was 
surprise that my mom and and my mom drank. I was surprised that my mom said it was okay. It's okay. Um, I know you. I know that you knew it was wrong and you made a mistake. And you know, I'm I'm glad you're okay. And so I was surprised that I didn't get. I really expected to get grounded and to to be questioned and you know how could you do this why did you go in my cabinet and and take that and all that stuff so um that was my first um that was my first bout of of drinking mm-hmm. and so after that nothing ever happened after that with my drinking but when I got into high school that was where my drinking really took off. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know that at football games and parties that they served beer. Um, I actually thought that beer was a soda pop and that it didn't contain alcohol. But quickly enough, I realized that it did, in fact. And man, I drank beer like there is no tomorrow. And when I look back, um, I, I don't know that I drank beer to fit in or because it made me feel good or both, um, probably a little bit of both. I, I don't remember any pain that I was trying to cover up, but I do remember that at one point when I was very young, my mother came to me and she says, you are the best child of all because you don't cry or complain or whine. And I think what that did is that made me believed that I don't have a voice. And that confirmed that um, if I just sit quiet and not say anything, um, then I'll be the best child of all. And I think that that might have stuck in my head. But the come out of it was that you're more lovable if you don't, quote unquote, whine. Whine is the word she used? She used whine. She used cried. She used complain. Um, and so I, she told me that I would just sit there in my crib and just play. And all the other kids would cry and whine and bang on the crib. And so she told me I was the best one of all. And I don't know mm. if that impacted me of in order for you to be loved, you, you, you don't whine, you don't complain, you don't have a voice. Okay. Wow. So you remember it clearly. I, I remember so it clearly. Your mind grabbed onto that and made all kinds of thoughts and and messages. You think, which I didn't know, they perhaps were subconsciously um, happening and forming my personality because the outcome of that was attention seeker. I mean, I was a cheerleader. I was a singer in a band. I was in the acting class. I was in choir. I had to be on the stage. I had to be loud. I had to be seen. And mm. and that, don't have a complaint. I don't, don't have a feeling. Right, right. And my dad, I do. I remember my dad would call me um, and he would say, how are you, honey? I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was struggling with different areas in my life, probably boyfriends or schoolwork or both. But he said to me, you can't always be fine. Wow. 
You can't always be fine. And so in between behind it and yes, exactly. Behind that, my drinking continued to get um, more advanced. And I wasn't just drinking beer. I was drinking hard alcohol and I was bringing it to school and I was drinking at school and I was drinking before school and I was drinking and I'm 15 years old. Wow. And um, I was... I was drunk at school. My girlfriend and I, my my friends were very influential over me. But again, I don't know that I had a voice or I wanted to fit in. We took a watermelon and the night before we went to school, I slept at her house. We took a watermelon and we poked a big hole in it and we poured a quart of vodka in it. We kept it in the refrigerator overnight and we took it to school and at lunch, we sat on the school grass in the front of the school and ate this water-soaked vodka, excuse me, vodka-soaked watermelon. This is the same friend? This is a different friend. Okay. Um, they advanced just like my drinking did, I guess. Um but it was like, get your gasoline and then go and be the, the fun, you know, fine one. And, and it was working for a while, right? It was working for a I while. Mean, Nadi, from the outside, I, inside, what was kind of, what started? I think what it was is I was so concerned that people wouldn't accept me or like me. And I think that that feeling and that, um, I, I, I I can't pinpoint as anxiety or just uncomfortableness, but that made me free. That made me, um, you know, my inhibitions were completely gone and I could, it wouldn't matter if people didn't accept me or like me because I just felt good because I was had an, you know, mind altering alcohol mm-hmm. substance within my body. Honey, you just identified like three kind of core wound kind of marking things that, that, I mean, we don't have to overthink it, but like messages, like outsider fitting in and then the, you don't have a voice. You can't, you can't not be fine. Um, and then all of that and nailed like three uh, beliefs and how alcohol helped you manage those. And then, I mean, your mind created a gazillion different thoughts based on, you know, the fear of not fitting in and um, keeping your voice quiet and um, having to pretend everything's okay all the time. I mean, that's like our ego mind managing life and that's how you were functioning and alcohol, quote unquote, makes it manageable. But, but I see how you you recognize all that now. And These I had messages. Yeah. the defense that I had to keep up. Can you imagine how exhausting that is? <laughs> yeah. And, and 
you know, it, 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 it continued into my twenties. And when I turned 21, I mean, I was buying alcohol when I was 18. And when I turned 21, that's when I can actually go into a bar and legally drink. And that's when it really took off. So before and that, were you getting your parents alcohol or were you guys just sneaking? I was, I was getting my parents alcohol. I also had boyfriends that were older than me and getting me alcohol. Okay. And, um, I was drinking, um, so heavily and my parents were super worried about me. Um, I, so they started questioning you and like when your dad said, you can't always be fine. What did that stir up? That stirred up, that stirred up guilt, Mm. that stirred up guilt, that stirred up shame, that stirred up that incomprehensible demoralization that why am I doing this to them? Okay. Why am I doing this to me? Um, Drinking to me was, it's party time. I'm at that age. Why can't this be fine? But those feelings of guilt and shame started like when at that 15 year old time. I believe that's when I, I think they probably started when they were 11, when my friend made fun of me because of the, my accent. Okay. And then I think that they kept with me. And then thus I started f- drinking to like numb some of those uncomfortable feelings, shameful feelings, guilty, guilty feelings. I, I feel like that's what was happening with me. As my mind was developing, I kept having to come up with these defenses and mm-hmm. therefore the indulgence with the alcohol. Okay. Yeah. Um, I got my first DUI in 1982. And I got my second DUI in 1983. And I got my third DUI in 1985. So I got three DUIs between 1982 and 1985. My father could not sleep because he was worried that he was going to get a call from the sheriffs that they had just scraped their child off the side of the road because she was drunk driving. And I was super selfish and I didn't care. I just wanted to drink. And I didn't want to drive home because I didn't want to wake up hungover and try to figure out where my car was. Were th- was the just pain and guilt and shame within the pain and the shame way and the too overwhelming, overwhelming, yeah. o- overwhelming <laughs> that I wanted to drink more. My father took me to a psychiatrist. He didn't know what was wrong with me. He didn't understand why I was going in and out of jail. And yes, I went to jail on several occasions. And if you want to talk about shame being in jail, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. Um, why, how could a 21 year old young lady be in jail? You know, the guilt, the shame, the remorse. I went to a psychiatrist and he told me that out of all the, the um, tests that he gave me, he came up with two conclusions. One, I'm traumatized. And two, I'm a people pleaser. So I looked at my father and I said, when was I traumatized? And so that was at 22 years old. 
I looked back at the time when I was, I don't know, four or five, when my mother told me that you are the best child and you don't cry and you don't whine and you don't complain. And I'm wondering if that's where it started, if that's where the people pleasing started. Mm -hmm. It was a subtle yet powerful message. And have you ever thought about the consistent moves and not feeling, you know, that you could really kind of settle in in one place and how the moving, you know, would snap away the relationships that you built and having to start again? And has have you ever thought about the moves affecting kind of that? I think subconsciously, Nadia, that that might have been my trauma because when I remember moving from New Jersey and I was 10 and I had a best, best friend and I remember bawling when I was saying goodbye to her. So I'm wondering being plucked out of home and school and friends and moved around how perhaps that could have caused unconscious trauma. A sense of powerlessness. A sense of powerlessness. Over your bonds, over... Yeah, feeling safe. And feeling, worrying that, um, like, when is going to be my next move? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be cared for? I'm wondering if if that, because we're still trying to tip, we're still trying to pinpoint what my trauma was and is and why the drinking and why the people pleasing. Um, but um, you could have nailed it. Um, I never thought of that, you know, I never the really moving and then for your mom to say that combined, like together with this powerful message that's so subtle. It's like, I can't get too close, but my heart's longing to get close and I'll only get close if I have everything fine on the outside and the people pleasing is more, it's, it's that it's this, um, this middle ground management of, I want to be close, but I can't get too close. And yeah, I'm going to be close by being the, the one, the easy, you know, happy go lucky one. And, and I'm always happy. um, They'll like me. If I'm always happy, Mm. they won't have to worry about me or tend to me. And I think that that I think that could be the cause and the effect of everything that happened to me. And, you know, my dad was so upset. And don't matter. Right. My dad was so upset with me and my mom had to live with that. And my mom had to see the sleepless nights and my mom loved me, but I think she was very upset with me. And, you know, I went over to the house one day and I wasn't living there. I had moved out. And my brothers were in the armed forces. And the only person that lived at home was my um, 16-year-old. He was 16 at the time, um, youngest brother. And my dad was um, my dad was on a, um, a business trip um, up north. And um, I had gone over to the house. This is before the, the trip. I had gone over to the house. And um, she was very... Um, um, 
just indifferent with me and not very loving and not very kind. And I think it was because she saw how upset my father was because of my drinking, because of my DUIs and, and how upset it was making him. And, um, she, she said something to me and I was angry and I just, I remember just leaving and just being pissed and I left. And so I'm at work and I was working at Delaney's, which is, um, a seafood restaurant in Newport beach. I don't know. Have you ever heard of it? Um, Delaney seafood restaurant. And I get the hostess came up to me and he said, your father's on the phone. Um, and I'm thinking, why is my father calling me? And he says, um, you need to come to Dustin community hospital. Your mother's had a seizure. And I thought to myself, seizure, you know, my mom doesn't have seizures Mm -hmm. and it was in July. So it was very, very hot. So I just assumed she might've passed out from the heat. Well, that was the day that he, my dad was flying in and my mom is at home. And she told my younger brother, Hey, I'm going to pick up dad at John Wayne airport when John Wayne was just a small little airport. Um, and I'll be back at six 30. Make sure you start the barbecue. Went to the airport, went upstairs to the other Delaney's that they have in the airport there, had a glass of wine and passed out and ultimately had a massive stroke and died. And um, we went to the hospital. It was just my sister. She worked at um, Fountain Valley. They had called her. My, My father had called me and told me this. So I left my work. My sister left her work. She worked at Fountain Valley Hospital and my younger brother. We all met at Tustin Community. When my dad flew in, they had him get off the plane first and said, your wife has had an accident. You need to get off the plane first. He got off the plane first. My dad thought she made a head of fender bender. We all met at the hospitals and the doctors told us that there is no chance of survival. She has had a massive stroke. I haven't spoke to my mom in two weeks. I am in disbelief and in shock. And when we went into the room and she was on life support, I thought that she was getting better. I didn't understand life support. And then I saw her chest rise and fall. I thought that that was making her better. And I had not spoke to her in two weeks. And during those two weeks, I kept thinking, I'm going to call mom. No, I'm not. She was mean to me. I'm going to call mom. No, I'm not. She was mean to me. And now she's laying in a hospital bed unresponsive on life support. And the doctors are saying she's gone. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong. There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And my dad just kept shaking his head. He was in shock and he's like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I just don't understand. And I mean, it was just so surreal, Nadia. I mean, of all, I'm looking up at the sky and I'm saying, please, God, don't take my mother. 
like she's the core of the family. Please don't take my mother. And, um, you know, I couldn't cry for like three months. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was just the shock and it was a delayed reaction, but, um, um, three months later, I remember, I don't know what set it off. You know, I'd smell her perfume or I would, I would see something that reminded me of her, like Christmas always reminded me of her. She would put her, these little like tangerines and little walnuts and little candies into our, um, into our Christmas stockings. And, um, everything reminded, like, we didn't want to have Christmas. We didn't want to have any celebrations because it just was wrong. It just wasn't the same without your mom. And I hadn't made any kind of amends with her. So it was extremely hard. Wow. That's a heck of a lot. The shock, how it happened, and then the inability to have follow through within yourself and that reaching out, all of that brought up vehemently brought up all the three, four other things that we just talked about that. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, what can you do? Life goes on. I, um, I was able to get, I was initial, able to get the initial p- part though, yeah. when you're saying it took a couple of months. Yeah. It took a couple so of months into that. Yeah. I just think it was a delayed right. reaction. I'm wondering if it was my, um, defense system, just, just not wanting to believe it, not wanting to accept it. Um, I don't know if it would have been any easier if we were talking, you know, would have, could have, should have now that when I see, um, women, you know, women like us having lunch or dinner with their mom, I just, I have that wish that I could sit there and have, and have a meal with her. Um, I know she's resting. I know she's in a better place more than anything. I know that I'll see her again. And I know she knows that I love her and she knows that I know she loves me. I know you know that, but like the the sudden abrupt loss is trauma in and of itself. And mm-hmm. to separate from the fact of it, when my father abruptly passed, it was staying in this disassociated and spiritual realm like you're talking about. It was... I know he is with me. So you knowing that your mom is there is the way that you try to walk through for so long. Yeah. For those couple of months, right? Yeah. And then when you smelled, when there were reminders. Yeah. That's when you broke down. Yeah. The perfumes or the different food smells um, just reminded me. It just, it just really hit hard. Um but you know, again, I know that I know your father's with you. That's for sure. 
and you're living on his legacy. And I know that my mother's with me and she would be so proud of me today. She really would. Today, do you see or thereafter in your story, how looking back, can you see how it affected your life thereafter and just your your interpersonal relations and um, your disease and and the inability to to process it kind of disassociated do you can you reflect absolutely now because there's never an end to that healing there's never an end it it will always hurt but it does get better but the good thing is is that on my third DUI they sentenced me to um, not only jail, but to AA meetings, um, which is Alcoholics Anonymous. I know you're familiar with that. Um, And I went to the meetings. I had to go to the meetings, but I ended up really liking the meetings and they were helping me not only to live sober, but also to have healthy relationships. And although my mom had passed, I do believe that that helped me to navigate through that incredible, painful loss and to come to grips with her passing away before we had our amends to make. The whole 12-step program of AA is living a, a life of sobriety, but also how to live, how to live step-by-step on a daily basis, how to have healthy relationships. What do you do when you want to ease that pain from whatever, any kind of hurt or loss? Um, And through the 12 steps, I learned so much about myself. And I I feel like I truly transformed as a woman in society. And I started doing things to better myself and to be a better person in society. And... I started playing my guitar when I was 13, but I never really did anything till I was 20. And I, I wanted to. Yes. As you're in AA and you're navigating the, the mourning and loss, in that process, when the program, you know, brings up self pity and resentment and things of that sort, um, were you. Did you struggle or, or were you beating yourself up a lot about the circumstances before her passing? Like, was there, it was shame showing up in a way that like had you lacking self-compassion, you know, um, at all? Uh, I, I was so um, guilty and I was so remorsed and it was so painful, Nadia, even though I was sober I am now feeling all my feelings up front and raw. And but did the guilt and shame prevent you from looking at, you know, the little hope in you and saying, you deserve to cry, you deserve to hurt, you deserve to, you know, be angry at it. Because sometimes when we hear the messages in the program, the should nots and uh, and those some of the character defects we need a safe non-judgmental place to feel, to not project them. Does that make sense? Did you ever that, allow that, her to That come? absolutely makes sense. I think that I was still struggling with my defense, my defenses to try to keep up that I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, I think I absolutely, when I look back, that, that 
that that guilt and that shame, it, it, it kept bubbling up. You know, I, 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 I was so remorse. However, working the program, it, it was helping me to navigate through it and to understand those feelings and to believe that, that I am a good person and that it's the disease not me as a person, but I still feel like that little hope inside of me was still saying, you know, uh, um, you know, struggling with, with, with the, am I, am I still loved? You know, you've done all these, you've hurt all these people, you've hurt your mom. Now she's gone. I think it still kept, yeah, that still interfered. Kept yeah it, it interfered with, you know, possibly interfered with that. Okay. There's a, there's a core wound here and it's okay to cry. It's okay. And have you allowed, you know, that enough? And cause the guilt and shame will, will stop it. It's like a wall. It, it, it did. I struggled. I struggled with sobriety for a while until I believe, you know, I had a breakthrough and that's when I started doing my music and okay. I've always wanted to be a singer in a band, but I couldn't sing. And people told me I couldn't sing. Oh no, I started out with not having the gift of a voice. And it was so frustrating because it's like somebody, right? It's somebody that wants to ski or, 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 or play the piano. Like I couldn't, and I didn't have a voice. And my father would compare me to Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey and, um, Celine Dion, I mean, I mean, please don't compare me to those people. Like they're fabulous singers. And so what I did is there's one thing that I had with all that guilt, guilt and shame. I had the drive and the stick-to-itiveness. And my father even told me your stick-to-itiveness hope is sometimes detrimental to you. But my mm -hmm. stick-to-itiveness and my passion to want to be a singer. Yes. Yes. I took voice lessons. I went to college. I took guitar. I took choir like four years. And I started you getting a believing in yourself. I, I believed mean, in myself. Okay. I mean, when somebody tells you you can't do something, you have two choices. Walk away and say, yeah, you're right. Or say, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong. You're wrong. And, and That's right. <laughs> I proved him wrong. I proved him wrong. And I went and I sang. There and I you went were advocating for the, for the hope. Ab absolutely. And by the way, I got the name Hope because my parents told me that they hoped I was a boy. Oh, okay. no. That's not traumatizing. Right? No. But they actually said they were just kidding. Nope. Just kidding, Hope. We love the name Hope. Now, I was born in the 60s. And apparently that was I believe they said a that. popular name. And so, um, but anyway, you know, I could always say there is hope. You want to be a singer? You're going to be a singer. So I would go and audition for bands and I would mm -hmm. put the tightest jeans on and the shortest shirt on. Mm -hmm. And I'd walk in there and the guys would look at me and they'd she be is like, beautiful, yeah. but <laughs> And I'd open my mouth and they would say, next like I couldn't sing. I couldn't sing. I didn't have, I had the drive, but I didn't have the confidence. Oh. So I didn't walk away. That wasn't my walking away. That was walking ahead. That mm -hmm. was pushing through. 
that if you ever think that you can't do anything and you fall, you get up and you wipe the dust off and you try again. So I kept pushing myself. I kept taking voice lessons. I kept investing in time to improve my voice and learn how to sing. And my phone started ringing off the hook. We want you to sing. We're performing over here. We want you to sing with this band. And I said, what are you talking about? I don't sing. I can't sing. And they said, yes, you can. Oh and I started God. singing with all these bands. I started singing at places like the House of Blues and the Orange Street Fair. I was doing a cover band playing at weddings and different various ceremonies and big parties like in Laguna Hills. And I still didn't think I could sing. Like I literally got stage fright. And wow. that's when Kimmy reached out to me and she said, Kimmy is the owner of Dee's house. And she said, I want to help you. She is in the book. She's in my book. book. She said, I want to do a woman's meeting, a woman's recovery meeting in my residential um, uh, detox center Mm -hmm. house. And I want you to sing and play guitar. And I said, I'm in. So this is before the meeting started? So so she said, I want you to open the meeting with a song. And then at the end of the meeting, I want you to close with a song. And I think that's when I met you. And I would have different songs like I like Sarah McLaughlin and um, Miranda Lambert and um, Nora Jones. And, you know, music is very healing. And the women loved it. And I'm a professional. To through singing, through music, and through what whether you were in your room alone and practicing, um, and then that connection with women, did, did you feel you could connect more to your feelings and emotions, the ones that one deserve? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Do I sit in my room and play my guitar and sing, and no drink, no pill? No pipe will ever bring up those feelings of healing and euphoria that the feeling I get when I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about. And then singing in front of women that are broken and their wings are broken and they listen to my words and they hear that music. I can't tell you the joy and the absolute um, thrill that I get from doing that. Truly, truly it is. Um, I'm so grateful that I pushed through it and I didn't put the guitar down or the microphone down because it is worth all that fight, all that blood, sweat and tears that I went through and everybody telling me no. That was your soul and your true self calling you. Keep going, girl. Keep going, girl. This is your gift. Thank you. This is how you can heal. So I dated a man and I was sober and he was in my band and his girlfriend, Anne, and we were friends and he was great. And he came to a gig one time and he said, "Uh, my girlfriend's pregnant. And I said, great. Are you guys going to get married? He says, no, I don't think so. And I was friends with Anne 
and I was friends with Eric. He was in my band. And somehow along the line, because of our connection with music, him and I got romantically involved. Involved. Okay. So what happened after that? So we got it romantically involved. Now, granted, he still is with Anne, um, but they're not getting along. Um, and it's a struggle because, you know, they have Daisy and he's not, he doesn't know what to do, but he knows that he can't continue a relationship with her. It was very toxic. They ended up breaking up. Him and I ended up getting together. Um, I ended up caring for Daisy during the week. And then we ended up getting engaged. Um, Anne took Daisy and brought Daisy back two weeks later because she was homeless and alcoholic and mentally unstable. So we had Daisy. I ended up raising Daisy from three to six years old. I was her mother. Every doctor's appointment, I taught her how to swim, how to read, how to write, how to poop. She loved me. I was the love of her life. She was the love of mine. Mom would pop over here and there, but she really wasn't in her life. At one point, when Eric was drinking, he offered me a glass of wine. And I'm sober for many, many, many years. And I ended up making the mistake by taking a sip of his wine. And it was only a matter of time before I started drinking again. We had a great relationship, but he was terrified that I was gonna take off. He complained about what I wore. He complained about the way I raised Daisy, he was just so hard on me and we ended up breaking up and he let me see Daisy for a while. Um, but eventually he took her from me. He took her from the biological mom and we ended up taking him to court. I partnered up with Anne. All I wanted was visitation. We lost in court because of mental Anne's mental stability Anne just wrote Daisy off and I never got to see her again. Oh my my heart gosh. The loss of my mom was so devastating, but I don't know what was more devastating, the loss of mom or the loss of Daisy, but I was so broken that I needed something to fulfill that hole. And I started advocating for foster children with the court appointed special advocate program. This program gave me the opportunity to love and to bless these young children where their parents were drug addicts and alcoholics and abusers of these children. I had seven cases. I had a um, case supervisor. She would read me the story and I would accept the case or not. Of course, I always accepted them. And I would take these kiddos and I would take them and I would write court reports and go to court for them. I would take them to Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm and swimming and out to eat. And the life that they had living in foster homes without no one wanting them or not them knowing where their parents are or why this is happening to them, I gave them no pun intended hope. And it filled that hole in my heart. And I love to do it. And the only reason why I only took seven cases is because I started getting really busy with work and real estate. 
and other things in my life. But I will tell you what, that was such an honor to do that for those children. Wow. That you turned it into something so beautiful is is amazing because I wanted to ask about when you went through the process fighting for her, the complicated, that's so complicated to navigate emotionally and your heart, your heartstrings and yearnings for this child. Did he mention the drinking? Did, was there shaming about that, that, that at all was involved in, in them deciding I mean, obviously, of the mom and her mental health issues. Um, but at that point, did a lot of old feelings come up during the yes, battle? Yes, he did. He did. He did blame me for my drinking. And that was definitely part of it. Um, going through the court and spending $30,000 on attorney fees and um, visits they became, um, um, what are the visits called when they're assisted? Monitored visits. I paid for those because the mother couldn't and my heart absolutely bleeding and him fighting tooth and nail and then trying to help Anne navigate through her mental illness. It was, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced that much pain in my life and that all that pain that I took and I did something so um, beautiful, like you put it, Nadia, to help those little kiddos um, is 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 truly a um, a beautiful story you in itself. Connected with the truth in your heart, which is that love, and not the guilt and shame, t- just separating you from that knowledge. You believed enough in your love and in your true self, and and so channeled it in a beautiful way. I am so sorry that you went through that. Um, we'll have to talk more about, about the next phase in one-on-one when we're just having a chat as girlfriends. Absolutely. Um, when um, you're court-appointed, um, advocate. the court-appointed advocate for foster children um, was just an amazing, an amazing thing for you to do. And I'm so healing. I hope that hope Mm -hmm. gives herself a chance to, to do the same continues to do that for you, for the little girl in you. It was super healing and I would do it all over again if I could. I don't know that I would take that pain, but if the pain turned it into that, I'll take it any day. I will. And today, how you how you nurture that little girl is is through your meetings, your music, and how how else are you just nurturing that connection to your true self and love when these things come up in your head that try and separate you? Right. I it's a daily struggle. I stay spiritual. I stay um, connected to God. I. Um, I give as much as I can to people that are in need or that are wounded, that are suffering like I did. 
I love children more than life itself. I would do anything for a child. I have not had children of my own, but I love children. Um, I try to stay on a path of love, selfless love and um, devotion to, to myself and to others. I really do. Um, but everything that I've been through in my life has made me the woman I am today with my music, with my love and care of other people, with my absolute love of children um, and the love of God that gets me through. And if I stay connected with all those things and I stay in a program to learn how to live, to learn how to live of life, of, um, of honesty and integrity and just, you know, acceptance, truth and love on a daily basis. That is on a daily basis. And again, all the struggles, um, I even wrote a song that will be our next podcast. I even wrote a song about it and I'll share really? it with you. Yes, I will. I you just have to put snippet. You are such Absolutely. an inspiration and so Absolutely. beautiful. And I think the twins will have a new aunt. Oh, absolutely. Let's get the option papers going. <laughs> Seriously. But what is the name of the song? I am woman. Really? I am woman. And um, I haven't quite put like a melody to it or a chorus to it, but I'm working on it. But I do have the lyrics. Um, it took me about, I don't know, two weeks to write, to, to um, um, come into some kind of emotion and feel, you know, what I'm feeling and, and everything that I've been through to come out and actually put it on paper and write a song. But the next is the melody and the chorus, which isn't difficult. I will just strum my guitar and see what sounds good, see what fits. Right. But I can't wait to share it with my women at the wing repair. And you are woman. So let's say it together. I am, I am woman. woman. <laughs> Thank you, Hope. Thank you Thank so you, Nadia. much. You're so welcome. Continue. Okay. Bye. You are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, Nadia-Davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.